Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Martin Gurry. Martin's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center and is the author of a terrific book called The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. He spent much of his career as a CIA analyst researching foreign media, and today he applies that skill set to examining the relationship between politics and information in the contemporary U.S. He writes for City Journal regularly, and he maintains an excellent blog also called The Fifth Wave. So, Martin, thanks very much for coming on. Hey, happy to be here. Um, So let's start with your article from our summer issue, which is called The Elite Panic of 2022. It's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, You identify in the essay several big disruptions to what had been, uh, you know, steadily prevailing progressive authorities. So from, you know, you describe a U.S. district judge's nullification of the federal um, mask mandate uh, in travel to Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter to the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Each of these developments, you observe, seem to force media and bureaucratic elites and progressives generally to confront the possibility that their grip on power was loosening. So what did the the response to these incidents indicate to you about the elite conception of the relationship between power and information? Right. Now, the first thing I would say is that, except for the last incident you mentioned, obviously the Dobbs ruling, these were not earth-shaking developments. These were, were pretty much pseudo-events, I would call them, uh, in which things did not go in the way that the elites wanted them to. The the judge, uh, uh, Catherine Mizell, basically allowed masks to be taken off in uh, mass transit and airports and uh, airplanes. Uh, Barack Obama gave a speech about disinformation. Uh, and Elon Musk made what seems to have been a thwarted, I mean, it's kind of unclear with all that stands, but an attempt to buy Twitter, not one of those three things is is a major is a major development. What was remarkable was the just the existential screams from uh, the elite class that each one of those uh, events uh, evoked. And what what I became clear as you look at what what was being lost, they felt is that this class is absolutely bent on control. They feel like if they relax for half a second, uh, the the populist wolf is going to crash through the door. Uh, there's going to be a second coming of of uh, uh, Donald Trump. There's going to be holocausts of of progressives. Uh, I mean, there there's this fevered uh, feeling that unless every aspect of our politics and our culture, as I mentioned in the in the article, is under their control. Everything is lost. You mentioned uh, Obama's uh, Stanford University speech, which was back in April, condemning disinformation, as he called it. He, he argued that this was undermining the shared culture of the United States, the shared set of facts that we all apparently once uh, share, you know, agreed upon, and and that promoted political stability. But really, how accurate is that? Um, view of a supposedly bygone age of political harmony. 
um, you know, you, you can read our history quite differently. It's kind of an astonishing position for a supposed progressive to take, right? I mean, he basically was arguing, and he explicitly said that even though in the 20th century, uh, women and people of color were sort of excluded, it was such a great time. It was such a wonderful era of shared information. And, and uh, we all, you know, kind of gathered in the, in the great American family room and, and you know, got our news from Walter Cronkite and laughed over I Dream of Jeannie and the Jeffersons. Uh, very, very old-fashioned, very, very backwards-looking. His idea of what needs to be done, of course, to prevent disinformation is regulation. His examples are um, the meat inspector. I mean, I guess looking at how you make algorithmic sausage, I'm not even sure how that applies, right? Yeah, how, how would that apply to uh, the information sphere? It doesn't. It's a, it's a very old-fashioned it's a, a way of looking back and sort of having in your mind a much simpler uh, informational world than what actually is existing right now. And he also wants to put forward a, a fairness doctrine, which used to be a thing in television, where if you, you know, if you say something in favor of the Democrats, you had to include something in favor of the Republicans. Well, I mean, our, <laughs> our information sphere is just about infinite for practical purposes. If you have to add a second infinity of, of fairness, I mean, that's an impossibility. So again, disinformation, like COVID, uh, is simply a tool of control. It's a way of saying there are certain uh, opinions that are toxic. They all have to do with Trumpism. And there are certain opinions that that uh, undermine democracy. And democracy is defined, of course, as uh, I call it the rule of the righteous. And that coincides exactly with Barack Obama's um, partisan preferences. So it's a very unself-aware, very... Um, uh, while posing as a, a kind of a philosophical, a philosophical attitude is really all about, number one, control, and number two, a panic that is being lost. You know, it's, it's indisputable, you've written about this extensively in your book and elsewhere, including for City Journal, that technological advances and seismic shifts in the media industry have reconfigured the information universe, the landscape. Uh, your book notes that the the many ways in which the digital age has, as you put it, battered that peaceable kingdom to bits. Um, and the media theorist, Andre Mir, who's also been writing regularly for City Journal, notes that the shifting political economy of the media has contributed to the emergence of what he calls post-journalism. It doesn't seem like we're ever going to go back to a world where Walter Cronkite and other trusted authorities served as the kind of gatekeepers of information. But, you know, it, isn't there at least something worth lamenting about the stability that that world might have once offered? Or is, is that a bit of a myth, as, as you sort of suggested? I mean, I, I, I guess it depends on where you stand in society and where you stand in life. I, I, don't, I don't think we've lost that much. Uh, it, it was a it was a an economy of scarcity. When you have something that is scarce, you 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 own value. So Walter Cronkite had information at that time. Let me tell you, I was I was working at CIA, and I could I had a, a view of the entire open information of the world. That was in the least sexy part of CIA. We were looking at media, and it was a trickle. It was just a trickle. So if you had some, you had authority. We were all parched 
we were dying for information. And Walter came up every evening and told us for like maybe 20 minutes uh, of mostly visual uh, stories. Uh, this is what's going on today. That's, a, that's the way it is. And we accepted it. Um, I don't think that's a model for anything. I don't think that's anything to aspire to go back to. Uh, not to say that the moment we're in right now is not in its own way even more um, painful and, and uh, confusing, but going back to that makes no sense to me. Uh, you, you make a key distinction in your story in the recent City Journal between political power and cultural power. Conservatives, you, you say, are politically strong but culturally weak. American politics are ideologically plural or pluralistic, but our culture is mostly liberal or progressive. Uh, you know whether the right can successfully wield its political power against its cultural foes seems to be, you know, the crucial question for the future of the country, what it's going to look like. You know, so so on the one hand, Republican politicians do seem increasingly willing to challenge big big media corporations and organs of cultural production, um, you know, that they, that they see as taking stances that are, are hostile or, or not good for the country. As, as with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, targeting Disney's tax arrangement with the state. On the other hand, you know, it's often said that politics is downstream of culture, in which case, you know, conservative political strength, strength should be seen as, as a kind of fragile thing. Um, you know, the product of a, a strangely designed political system rather than the reflection of political or, or popular will. So, you know, what, what's your view on that um, tension? Well, I would start with my culture. This, my, my guess, and when you talk about culture, honestly, this is, the, you know, I, I'm used to having facts and figures uh, backing up what I say. And when we talk about culture, it's mostly speculative, okay? Uh, but I, my take is that this monolithic culture that we have right now, in which the progressives have taken over every major institution, with the possible exception of the judiciary, in the United States of America, all the way from Hollywood to, you know, the corporate boardrooms to, of course, the news media, um, that this is kind of an abnormal and probably unsustainable thing. Uh, for one thing, there is a lot of money to be made uh, by pitching to the other side and a lot of money to be lost by insulting the other side, as Disney's finding out. And I don't think, I think, I do believe that, that uh, politics is way downstream of culture. I think politics can make, can penalize certain, you know, posturings like, like Disney's and can change certain cultural um, uh, instances like schooling in the state of Florida. But, you know, you have to be very careful about that too, because if DeSantis is mandating uh, what he calls anti-woke school uh, policies in Florida, what is to prevent a progressive uh, governor that succeeds him from doing the same thing in the opposite direction? So, I mean, uh, it's not politics. Politics can penalize culture. It's going to have to be something more, more from the depths than that to change the culture, I think. But on the other hand, I do believe that there's something very artificial about this monopoly, this monolith that we have right now. Well, maybe say a little bit more about you know the cultural imbalance. It's it's uh, it's the case that we're seeing, uh, and some people have started writing about this: the emergence of what 
what you might call a conservative counterculture. So, you know, the, the, the kind of overwhelming uh, st strength in the culture of modern progressivism, as, as you know, um, it's, it's giving way in certain quarters to subcultures that view conservatism as kind of transgressive. So do you, do you think that that's a, a possible um, development that could, that could grow, the, the idea of, you, you know, a kind of right-wing counterculture? I mean, honestly, I think there's a lot of culture that is not necessarily politicized. In fact, American culture, because it had a very strong commercial aspect to it, has tended to avoid politicization. And what it did, it was just to seem edgy or, or different or whatever. Um, and I, I don't know that we could ever go back to that, but I think uh, there's money to be made there. So some aspect of the culture is going to pitch to people who don't want to, every moment of their lives, uh, pretend that politics is the most important activity that the human race has ever invented. It's not. There are many things that are much, much more important. Uh, there are many uh, human stories, human relations uh, that, that are far more profound uh, than politics. And these kind of get either washed away or politicized themselves. Uh, and I think kind of a natural gravity uh, might induce that to happen. I, I, I noticed in my, in my uh, article in, in CJ, um, just several trends. One of them is the fact that the conservatives are politically strong. The other one is that, um, you know, the, the minority uh, groups are, are kind of, bailing on, on the progressives, and that becomes very hard for them to uh, act as the, uh, the impersonators of, of uh, racial groups if the racial groups are not represented by them. And we are primarily, I think this is a, a big issue, is we are a, a, a culture on the move right now. This, there are gigantic population shifts that are, are uh, derived from remote work that began with a pandemic uh, that, I mean, Migration is a great culture shifter, and I can't imagine that with those people who are arriving somewhere new, uh, there are whole new stories that have to be told about that that can't be pegged to, to um, you know, progressive and, and, and liberal you know, templates. We're certainly seeing the effects of, of remote work um, in New York, post-pandemic New York, where you know the city... Um, workers, office workers really haven't returned in mass. Uh, people are still working remotely. That's going to uh, uh, necessitate big shifts in the way um, the city's property is allocated, uh, zoning changes. You know, there, it, there's not enough uh, apartments right now. A lot of people still want to move to the city, but the office workers haven't come back. And, and that seems to be, uh, you know, a long-term shift, as, as you say. Yeah, and along with that, of course, um, all the restaurants and the stores. I mean, last time I was in Manhattan, every every fourth or fifth store was was empty. Yeah, it's it's certainly the case in Midtown, where you know downtown areas is looking a little more pre-pandemic, uh, very lively in the streets. But no question that uh, big big shifts in in the way the city's going to have to operate moving forward. I wonder if you you want to. Um, say a little bit more about this uh, this idea, which you've embraced as well, of post-journalism and whether uh, a public appetite for more traditional journalism, um, you know, which at least tried to uh, present facts without uh, spinning them too dramatically, whether that's got a future. 
Yeah, I don't know that I would agree with your definition of, of traditional journalism. I always have been a skeptic of that. But it's gone. It's gone and has gone for good. And my friend Andre Mir came up with his brilliant book, uh, Post Journalism, in which he explains how newspapers, which are you know, the Ark of the Covenant for journalism. Uh, if you're a journalist, you're going to sneer at um, TV journalism, forget about the web. So the old newspaper journalists, which were the real journalists, um, suddenly they have realized that there's money to be made not by um, not by pretending to objectivity and uh, appealing to a, a mass audience of consumers, which was uh, what the old style was, Newspapers have never made money by selling newspapers. They made money by selling eyeballs, audience, to uh, advertisers. Uh, if you wanted to do that, you couldn't alienate anybody, so you segregated opinion from your factual reporting. These are all fairly bogus categories, but it was a, a very ritualistic thing that was done. Now, if you look at the New York Times, which is the lead in this, it's more like a creed. You're preaching a creed. People believe, for example, during the Trump years, it felt like the world was ending, and and how how what 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 how can I get out of this? How, how is the country going to be safe? What words do I use? And the New York Times said, "Come inside my little paywalled garden, and I will explain everything to you. I will explain to you how evil Trump is, how he's about to fall, and here are the words that you can use to persuade your friends that the, the, you know, you're in the right side." Um, it worked amazingly for the New York Times. It worked somewhat for Washington Post, um, Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal probably does at least. Um, I don't think anybody else can do it. I mean, because part of the issue is nobody wants to have a, a you know, paywalled garden where it's just one town. In, in, in the age of the web, it has to be uh, a name with, with national and global resonance. So you have to be the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're basically... They're selling polarization. They were commoditizing Trump, and they were amazingly successful at it. Well, thank you very much, Martin Gurry. Uh, don't forget to check out Martin's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description, and you can find uh, this, this recent essay in the Summer City Journal, but also his earlier work for us. And you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on, on the podcast today, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. Martin Gurry, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.